Well, what's up, everybody? Great to see you all this weekend. I want to welcome all of our campuses and those of you that might be joining us online. Uh, my name is Mike Bro, and I get to be one of the, the, the teach, teachers at this uh, church, and man, I just love being a part of this place. I, I can't wait for Easter. It's just a week away. Be thinking of who you're going to invite. Uh, such great news for somebody to hear, and you could be that person that is the conduit to get them uh, some hope in, in their life. So be thinking about who you're going to invite, pick up a stack of cards today, and, and uh, pass them out in, in your world. Hey, we're walking through a letter in the New Testament of the Bible. It was written to a young church in a city called Corinth. Now, not the one over in Denton County, Texas. I heard it's a nice place. Uh, but this one was in ancient Greece, and it was, it was pretty wild. Now, some of you know that uh, our family planted a church in uh, Las Vegas. In fact, my daughter is teaching there this weekend in that church, uh, which is really cool for me. Uh, we, we planted it back in 19, uh, well, I had hair back then. I can't, can't remember what it was. Um, but it was one of the greatest adventures of, of our lives. I still have a deep, deep affection uh, for the people of Las Vegas. But it was a pretty wild place. I mean, when your marketing slogan is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, uh, you know it, it's, a, it's an anything goes uh, kind of place. But it was so incredible. I can hardly even talk about it. <laughs> to see the amazing grace of God just ambush people from every walk of life. And uh, way back then and up until this day, we refused to call it Sin City. We called it the City of Grace. Because the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. And it changed my life and it changed my perspective uh, towards people of all walks of life and just want everybody to find hope and healing and joy and acceptance and, and, and freedom. So I think I might just have a tiny bit of perspective of the deep affection that Paul feels for this church that he planted in a what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth kind of place. He loved these people. I mean, he loved them. And it's why he writes such a straightforward letter to them. He longed for them to grow and mature. He wanted them to see them become like the light, of, the light of the world in this dark culture. He knew that this church, much like this church, had amazing potential to make a difference if they would just genuinely love God, genuinely love people outside the church, and love each other in the church. In fact, loving others is such a theme of this letter that one of the most famous passages in all the Bible appears over in chapter 13 in this letter. If you hadn't even been around church very much in your lifetime, you've probably been to a wedding and you have probably heard this, verse, this, this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. True love never fails. And then Paul puts an exclamation point in the whole thing in chapter 14. He says, let love be your highest goal. Whatever goals you're going to set for yourself, the metrics for your business, the success of your team, your GPA at the end of this semester, your mile time in the upcoming marathon, or your cholesterol numbers. Out of all the noble goals that you can set for yourself, let love be your highest goal. Above all else, move through your day asking, what does love require of me today? And that's the spirit 
with which Paul writes in the passage that we land in today. We're in chapter 8 today, so if you've got a Bible, got an app that you use, we'll put it on the screens as well, we'll track along together. Josh briefly touched on this last weekend, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but let me just give you a, a little background, Be- because the particular issue that Paul is addressing here has, has something to do with something we don't really wrestle with today. It was unique to their first century culture, and it had to do with eating meat that had been offered as a sacrifice to idols, these little g-gods. Now, I don't know about you, but on occasion I have offered up some burnt offerings on my grill. I let some burgers get out of control the other day. I'm serving up hockey pucks on buns, just being honest. And we can debate all kinds of diets. We can say, well, I'm keto, well, I'm South Beach, well, I'm Whole30, I'm Paleo, I'm I'm gluten-free, and on and on and on. We could debate diets. I heard a comedian the other day talking about this, and since I'm a carnivore, it made me laugh. He said, meat just sounds like what you're supposed to do. Me eat, me eat, me eat. (laughs) Vegan stands for vegetables again? Uh, again, we can, we can laugh about it, and we can cut each other some slack and respect where we've all landed. But what Paul is writing about here had nothing to do with someone's dietary preferences. What he's writing about had everything to do with their love for each other. It was about them selfish, selfishly abusing their newfound freedom in Christ and thus diminishing their capacity to love each other. And that makes it very relatable us. So here's how he starts. Now, regarding your question about food that's been offered to idols, yes, we know that, and he puts it in quotation marks, we all have knowledge about the issue. We see quotation marks like this. He's responding to what they have said to him. Some people were selfishly dismissing other people's concerns about this by saying to them, come on, come on, don't sweat it. We we know that it's okay because we have been enlightened. We know that idols aren't even real. Besides, we are free in Jesus Christ to do whatever we want to do. And so Paul continues. You might want to write this one down. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. While knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Then he says, anyone who claims to know all the answers really doesn't know very much. But the person who loves God, that's the one whom God recognizes. As a little side note here, I've been in ministry for a long time now. I think 96 years, I think. And uh, I have heard people, and it's usually people that have been Christians for a long time, complain through the years, we need to go deeper around here. We just need to go deeper. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I have trouble processing that. Because according to Jesus and Paul, it seems like loving God and loving other people is about as deep as it gets. Now, now don't get me wrong. Knowledge is good. And, you know, studying the symbolism of the tabernacle and the Hebrew names for God and the seven seals of Revelation, all those things can add to our faith and even make us more grateful. But if we're not careful, as Paul says, knowledge can just make us feel a little more important than other people. Love is what really strengthens us. Love is what really strengthens other people. Love is what really strengthens the church. Our goal is not to be able to smoke somebody in a game of Bible Jeopardy. (laughs) Let love be your highest goal. He goes on to tell them that in regard to idols, they're absolutely right. He said there's no such thing as other gods. 
They're all just phony wannabes with no power whatsoever. They are all just pretenders to the throne of the one true and living God. There's only one God, one Lord, one creator, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then he writes in verse 8, it's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. Paul's saying, again, it's, it's not about the meat. And yes, you're right. It's just food. And yes, you're right. Idols are not real gods. But you must be careful so that your, quote, unquote, freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that was offered to an idol? He's saying, listen, we are all at different mile markers on our spiritual journey. And everybody in your church is not at the same level of maturity and understanding yet. Lots of people in your church are brand new to the faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what? They spent a long time worshiping these phony little G gods. They actually believe for most of their life that they were real, all of them. And so when you, who claim to be more mature, just flippantly do whatever you want to do in the name of freedom, telling them that you're going to hit up the Friday night barbecue at the Temple of Aphrodite, it makes them wonder if anything's really changed. It makes them regress in their faith. It entices them to go back to their old life thinking, well, well maybe I do need those various gods in my life. And it hinders their relationship with the one true living God. So please... Love them enough to not do that. Now, it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of like me inviting a bunch of my buddies who are struggling to find sobriety over to my fire pit and texting them, BYOB. Even though drinking alcohol has never been an issue for me, and I am free to do so in moderation, it would be so inconsiderate of me to put them in that position. We, we all need to be aware of what could lead us back into bondage, and we also have to be lovingly aware of what might lead somebody else away. So Paul goes on, verse 13, so, so if what I eat, and you can substitute, if what I drink, what I watch, what I post, what I read, what I listen to, if it causes another believer to sin, I, I just won't eat meat. I will never eat meat as long as I live. I just, I just don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Again, it's not about food and drink here. It's about abusing your freedom in such a way that it hurts other people. Let love be your highest goal. As I was working through all this, the word freedom just kept jumping out at me. Uh, so let's, let me just give you a few things that I feel like God impressed on my heart the last couple of weeks about true freedom. And the first one is this. True freedom is found in Jesus Christ. True freedom is found in Jesus Christ. Now, I know you might expect the pastor dude to say something like that. But please, please know I'm not saying that as somebody who's supposed to say stuff like this. I'm saying it as a formerly empty, screwed up guy who found hope, truth, meaning, satisfaction, and freedom in Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus gave us this amazing radically countercultural talk one time. It was known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you can find it in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You ought to check it out sometime. It's unbelievably great. And he wraps it all up by saying this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation 
on the rock. I'm learning that for freedom to be real, there has to be like a rock-solid truth source. And he is. Jesus said on another occasion to a group of people who were coming to believe in him, he said, you're truly my disciples. If you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about knowing Jesus and I'm trying to pattern my life after him and trying to introduce as many people as I can to him so it's not just so they'll go to heaven when they die. Now, don't get me wrong, that's, that's a really big deal. But I also want them to experience true freedom right here in this life. See, walking with God is what we were created to do. And when you choose to build your life on Jesus Christ, your creator, when you let him be your teacher and your friend and your leader and your role model and your rock-solid foundational truth source, I'm just telling you from experience, you're able to walk through life with, with a strong sense of identity and confidence. You experience joy and kindness and gratitude and a peace that you have a hard time even explaining to other people. It feels like freedom. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, I hear you, man, but I've always heard that God is more of a taker than a giver. And honestly, I'm kind of afraid if I decide to follow Jesus, he's going to take away my freedom. And I get it because I've been there. Plus, when you talk about freedom, you're talking about something pretty precious to an American, right? We're all about freedom of speech, freedom to assemble, freedom to bear arms, freedom to vote, freedom of religion, freedom of the press. And since the Garden of Eden, men and women have been saying to God, hey, God, don't you be messing with my freedom. So maybe, just maybe, there's a nightmare in your mind of what God might do to your freedom if you decided you were going to follow Jesus Christ. My fire pit guys got, got a discussion about all this one, one night about where our brand of freedom had taken us. And, and I love this guy, just, a, just an old surfer dude, uh, recovering addict, uh, just raw as he could be, kind of throws up his hands. You know what all my life people told me? Drink whatever you want to drink, smoke whatever you want to smoke, shoot whatever you want to shoot, snort whatever you want to snort, steal whatever you want to steal, and just be free, dude. It was such a lie. Let me just ask you, maybe even from your own perspective, has this, uh, has this kind of chemical freedom produced real freedom or bondage? Mind-bending pleasure or shattered lives? I mean, the next time you're in a conversation with a recovering drug addict or alcoholic, see if freedom is the first word that comes to their mind. You know, Josh talked about this several weeks ago, how we are now celebrating unprecedented levels of sexual freedom. By the way, if you, have, if you haven't heard that talk, you need to go to our website and check it out this week. Incredibly helpful talk. And I love teaching with Pastor Josh. I've never heard the word horny used so many times in a sermon before. <laughs> I'm telling you, it, it's really a must listen. You, you got to check it out. But in our culture right now, we got casual sex, we got tender hookups, we got friends with benefits, all kinds of sexual identity confusion. And as a result, very few feel really free. Over 65 million Americans are living with a sexually transmitted disease. And just talk to the millions of men and a growing number of women in our society who have internet porn addictions. After a few hours of viewing images that they cannot erase from their minds, after promising themselves never again, they find themselves glued to their computer screen the very next night. Ask them how free they're feeling. 
And how many marriages have been destroyed and sons and daughters disillusioned by a mom or a dad's sexual freedom? I know a whole bunch of people who would say what I thought was freedom has absolutely wrecked my life. Or let's just throw in our freedom to spend without limits. There's even something from the National Bank called the Freedom Card. Has that kind of unlimited freedom caught up with anybody else? So think about this for a second. Isn't it obvious that life without limits isn't all that free? I mean, all across the board, this kind of freedom leads to disappointment and heartbreak and addiction. History proves that a life without limits is destructive. It's just a fake freedom. Which brings me to the second thing I've been learning about true freedom. True freedom always comes with guardrails. True freedom comes with guardrails. Again, Josh touched on this just a couple of weeks ago, how, how contrary, to God's, contrary to popular opinion, God's ways are not designed to take away our freedom. Instead, our Creator, the one who knows us best, our Father, the one who loves us most, gives us limits that flow out of His perfect love so that we actually can be free. I know, I know that some of you probably take like the, the, the 30 or maybe you take the 35 or the 45 or the 635 or the George Bush or the LBJ to, to work every day. Have you ever noticed that as you drive up on a ramp, there's all kinds of rules and limits. There's a sign that says no pedestrians, uh, no, no hitchhiking, no bicycles, no non-motorized traffic. You get on those roads, there are more rules there than just about any other place on the planet. Keep right except the pass. No crossing the median, no U-turn, no stopping except for emergency, no speeds faster than 70 miles an hour. And yet with all those rules, all those limits, we take those routes because they're the safest, fastest routes around the Dallas area. In fact, do you know what we sometimes call those roads? Freeways. <laughs> Obedience to the guidelines is actually freeing. We, we saw this verse a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6. Paul again writes, as you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. I mean, how many of us found ourselves in bondage, a slave to certain things, because in our quest for personal freedom, we just disregarded God's wisdom and just blew past the guardrails? Maybe this will help you. Uh, our son, Derek, uh, when he was a little boy, we called him the master of disaster. Anybody else got a toddler like that in your house right now? Oh, he was always getting into stuff, always hurting himself. I remember one time we, we, we were uh, messing around at church after a service, and Derek came up on stage, and he was kind of running around and stuff, and, and he grabbed the microphone like little kids do, and he was kind of playing with the microphone, acting like he was a singer and stuff. And he went to put the microphone down in the microphone stand, which was on the floor, and he slipped, and he fell, and he caught his chin on the edge of the stage and just split his little chin wide open. Took him to the emergency room. They had to put like six stitches in his chin to close the gash. On the day that we took him to the doctor to get the stitches taken out, he falls, hits his head on the corner of the house. They put stitches in the back of his head while they were taking them out of his chin. Anybody else got a toddler like that? You know what I'm talking about, right? We look out in the backyard one day. He's about four years old. And he hit this little uh, Fisher-Price horse. It was a white plastic horse with red wheels and a blue saddle. Anybody remember these little Fisher-Price horses? Had a little storage compartment. Cool little thing. We called him Bucky. That was his name, Bucky the horse. And so I looked out in the backyard. I could see out in the backyard, and Derek was walking through the backyard with Bucky under his arm, and he's walking toward the swing set. 
I watched him as he climbed the ladder to the slide with Bucky under his arm. I watched him put Bucky on top the slide, and before I could get outside, he had mounted Bucky. And he went giddy up, and down that slide he went flying. He hit the ground with such force, I mean, blood and mud came out of his nose, on his head, and Bucky was on his side as the wheels were still spinning. I mean, it, was, it, it looked so funny. I could hardly, hardly go out there and help him, but we did, and as good parents do. Uh, he had a thing for slides. I don't know what it was. I was playing softball one time. I stepped in the batter's box, and the umpire goes, Tom, out your son. And I turned around. Derek's standing there, and his arm is like this. And uh, he goes, hey, Dad, I think I broke my arm. And I went, I think you did. I almost passed out looking at it. I said, what were you doing? He goes, I was running up the slide hurtling people as they were sliding down. He just, I mean, he was always thinking of stuff like that, always, always getting hurt. Probably the clincher, though, when he was, when he was again, four years old. He got this cold that would not go away. And uh, he was a real cuddly kid, so he'd love to climb up in your lap and, and cuddle and hug and stuff. But he'd had this cold for so long, I don't mean to sound gross, his nose just stunk. It was like his snot was just, ugh, it just made, made you, you know, gag. And uh, so, so we took him to the doctor, got some antibiotics for it. It didn't really help a whole lot. Uh, took him back the, the next week, and, and uh, the doctor, this, this has been like three months now. Uh, the doctor comes out. He goes, you know what? Uh, he doesn't have a sinus infection. Uh, he, he, uh, he doesn't have a cold. Uh, there's a Nerf ball stuck up his nose. <laughs> he, he had taken a piece of a Nerf ball about that big and just rammed it up his nose as far as it would go. I don't know why he did it. He just decided he'd try it. So I had to hold his little head as they were pulling, pulling sponge out of this kid's nose. It, just, it was just, it was so, it was so bad. So you can see why when he was a little, little boy, a little toddler, we had one of these in our houses, in our house at the top of the stairs. Why did we put that up there? To destroy his freedom, right? No, to keep him alive. And gang, listen to me. God is a perfect dad. And as a good, good father, he takes his word and he locks it in place at the top of the stairs of our life to keep us safe, to protect us and to protect other people and to give us true freedom. Amen. While we fear God is going to take away our freedom, while we fear God's going to make our lives miserable, Jesus paints quite a different picture when he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's saying that Christianity isn't just a good way to die. It's the best way to live. And I'm a slow learner, but I have learned that true freedom only comes to the unconditional love, grace, acceptance, wisdom, and guidance is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus said in John 8, 36. He says, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You see, gang, true freedom isn't found in a release from all restraint, but in a submission to a new leader, Jesus Christ. He is the one who knows you best, created you to do life with him, loves you with this unfailing love, and he alone has the words of life. And man, I just can't help but think how different this world would be if we would all just stay within the loving guardrails and embrace the true freedom that Jesus came to bring. And when you know that you've been set free, set free indeed, when you know you've been set free from the power of sin, when you know you've been set free from your past, when you, when you know you've been set free from the fear of death, not only are you now free to really live, you're free to really love. And here's the other thing that God's been impressing on me this week, kind of, kind of the thrust of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. True freedom always shifts my focus from me to you. That's what true freedom looks like. 
It always shifts my focus from me to you. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 9, and let's check out how Paul continues this discussion about freedom. He says, even though I'm a free man with no master, I become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. Here's a guy saying, when Jesus Christ set me free for the first time in my life, I started putting other people first. I genuinely started caring about other people, like all people. I tried my best to find things in common with them. I tried to respect them. I just wanted to live like Jesus among them. When I found true freedom through Jesus Christ, it shifted my focus of my life from it's all about me to know it's all about you. And I don't know about y'all, but I, I want to live that way. You know, a couple of years ago, at the height of all the name-calling and mean-spirited comment sections and all the posturing about our rights on social media, there was another scripture that Paul wrote that really, really spoke to me. And I posted it before I decided to take a long break from the wonderful land of Twitter. Uh, this is what I posted, Galatians 5. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence, love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. Amen. You see, true freedom always involves dying to self. When I decide to follow Jesus, to pattern my life after him, I deny myself daily. I pick up my cross and I follow him. My life no longer revolves around my rights and my way and my wants and my needs and my comfort and my agenda and my preferences. My focus begins to shift from me to you because that's what my leader modeled. And here's what's so cool about all this that I found. As I follow his lead on a daily basis, I'm finally set free from my biggest obstacle to freedom, me. Let me just throw out this truth that, that I've been learning. As long as life is all about you, you will never be happy. As long as life is all about you, you will never be happy. True freedom is simply incompatible with selfishness. And living an other-centered life frees you from obsessing so much about yourself. You're not stressing out any longer about your stuff and your status and your rights. You're free to live a life of gratitude and contentment as you move through your days just loving God and humbly serving other people. There, there's a ton of secular research that re reveals a big-time connection between happiness, freedom, and serving. One study was done at the University of Chicago, and people were asked, what's the most fulfilling jobs or careers? Guess what kind of jobs were at the top of the list? Vocations that were other-centered, where you teach others, help others, care for others, serve others, protect others. The other thing they found was that there was no income level associated with the level of their, of their happiness. The deep level of satisfaction came from just living beyond themselves for other people. Then there was another study done over in the UK. They did uh, 40 different studies over a 20-year period that asked the question, is there a connection between happiness, health, and selflessness serving other people? The answer came back a big time, yes. And these weren't people who like, you know, volunteered once a year for something. These are people who carved out time in their life just to make serving other people their lifestyle. These studies show that people who live beyond themselves suffer less depression, 
less heart disease, less stress. They enjoy higher levels of satisfaction, contentment, and happiness. Research all around the world comes to the same counterintuitive conclusion as Jesus and Paul. Selflessness leads to freedom and happiness. Now, you might be thinking, I don't get that. I just don't get that. How, how can me living selflessly make myself happier? How can emptying myself leave me feeling full? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because so many of you have bought in. You serve tirelessly around this place and you experience what I'm talking about. And sometimes you stand back and wonder, how in the world does this work? This feels so weird. I feel so much freer when I'm doing something for somebody else than when I'm doing something for me. It is counterintuitive. And on the surface, it doesn't make much sense. And here's why, and that's why most people don't do it. But those who do will tell you the absolute best way to fill yourself up is to pour yourself out. Amen. You see, we've been made in God's image. So we have been divinely pre-engineered to give ourselves away because that's what he does. And so when we do it, we experience this deep satisfaction and a freedom that really is hard to describe. You want to know where you'll find the happiest, freest people in the world right now? I'll tell you where you'll find them. You'll find them working in refugee camps caring for displaced Ukrainians. You'll find them serving, scared, homeless, devastated, lonely, displaced tornado victims. You'll find them feeding and clothing orphans. You'll find them giving their resources and volunteering their time to provide for the under-resourced families of this community. You'll find them on a mission trip somewhere in some underdeveloped country building houses for people who are living in a cardboard box and only dream of the day that they maybe, maybe have water and electricity in their lifetime. You'll find them giving their day off to do a car repair for a single mom or fixing a leaky faucet for an elderly neighbor across the street. You'll find them taking a, taking a, a boy with an absent father to a, to a ball game. You'll find them channeling significant portions of their resources to help reach and teach people about Jesus Christ because they're learning that true freedom shifts my focus from me to you. And gang, when that shifts in you, you will do anything to help people find the love of God. Let me ask you this question. What would you do if you knew you only had days to live? I mean, what would you do if you only had a few days to live? Would you go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, go 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu? <laughs> I mean, what would you do if you knew you only had days to live? Jesus washed feet. And then he opened the door to eternal life. That's what he did. This weekend marks the final days heading toward the cross where the one who came not to be served, but to serve, laid down his life for the sins of the world. Why? Because love was his highest goal. See, so what do you say we follow our leader and love our way to true freedom? Let's bow our heads for a moment. Father, I'm so grateful for the freedom that comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God, I, 
I thank you for the words of Paul and I thank you for this letter that he wrote just motivated by love for these people. And I, I thank you for the wisdom that your word gives us. And it seems to always point us back to just two simplistic things. Just love God and love people. God, we want to get that deep. We want that to be said of us. Man, those people are deep. They love God. They love people. Father, help us to be considerate of each other and not to do things that would cause each other to stumble, cause each other to regress in our faith, our walk with you. Help us to always shift our focus from our needs to someone else's. We want to live a selfless way like Jesus did. Father, I I pray that uh, this coming week would be just full of invitations for people to come on Easter weekend and hear about this hope, to hear the good news of God's love for this world. Thank you, Jesus, that you, on this day, 2,000 years ago, you started your journey with a resolute iron will. And even though you could have chosen to go the other direction, you walked toward the cross. Thank you for doing that on our behalf. We're so grateful. Help us to follow you with the way we love. And I pray all this in your name. Amen.